Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck back for another podcast for the Knockdown. I am joined by my partner in crime, in rhyme, Michael Bamberger. We just did a fist bump. It was the most awkward thing in the history of podcasts. Michael, thanks for doing this. Happy to do so. That's not even true, but thanks for lying. Love the podcast. That's not true either. But he he's grudgingly accepts it as part of our new reality. Uh, we're going to look ahead to the 2019 season. But I thought we should start by by letting the listeners know of all the new and exciting things that are happening um, at our place of business. For those who haven't followed it closely, in 2018, in the spring, Michael and I left the mothership of Sports Illustrated and came over to Golf Magazine and Golf.com full time, which is, that was a big deal, right? We got Kurt flooded. <laughs> That's a good reference. Not many will understand it, but you and I do. It all worked out really, really well for us. We had a great run with great people at Sports Illustrated, but we're really in the right place for ourselves and, and for the game. So, and we've really, truly had a, uh, um, we could not have had a better new owner than, than we have, I truly believe it's that. exciting times here. We are, we the new issue, which is the February 2019 Golf Magazine, is, uh, is gonna hit newsstands any day now. It's all, it's completely redesigned. It looks great. It's thicker paper. The, the dimensions of the magazine actually grew, which is unusual. Um, and we, you and I have been working on it in some way, large and small. And I know everyone thinks print is dead, but we're, we're kind of, we're turning back the clock here. It's like, it's like the eighties here at golf magazine. We're, we're investing in print. You know, I'm not sure print is dead. I'm not sure the wooden driver is dead. I'm not sure that 6,000-yard courses are, are dead. You know, a lot of things uh, have cycles to them. And uh, I think the pleasure of having a beautiful magazine in your hand uh, is actually an eternal one. And I think he's making a very uh, a very smart bet here. Yeah, I mean, when, when I go on, on my plane flights, I take seven or eight or nine magazines, and I shed them throughout the trip. I find that very satisfying. Mm-hmm. I, I spend so much time looking at my phone and my computer. I don't want to do that for for pleasure. Like, give me something to hold in my hands. Yeah, it could be yeah. a book, but it's often a magazine. Like, I, I, am I a dinosaur, or are other people into that? I don't even know. I, it's hard to quantify. When when you walk down the aisle in the in the in the airplane, it's mostly screens. But I, I still like paper. Yep. Yeah, I'm well. I'm completely with you. That won't, that won't surprise you. Let's talk about your your important story that you wrote about uh, for this uh, for this relaunch issue or February issue. It's got Dustin Johnson in the cover, but in a manner of speaking, the lead story is really yours about the uh, the tragic death of of uh, the golfer Thilia Arathamina from uh, Iowa State. Uh, how did you get interested in that story? How did that come about? And what were what were some of the interesting things you learned along the way in uncovering this incredibly rich story about a life that ended much too early? Yeah, that I can say that's the hardest story I've ever done. Wow, and it, that's saying something because you've written some tough ones, including the, the 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 tragic suicide of the LPGA star from some years ago. Yeah, Erica Blasberg. Yeah, Erica Blasberg. that was that was tough, but um, you know, it, she made the decision in some ways. She, right. She, she took ownership of the ending, and it right. was also more time had passed. It wasn't quite as raw. You know, I was I was doing these interviews with Celia's family and her loved ones just a couple months after after she was murdered, and so it was, and a lot of them, the, her teammates. It was the first interviews they they had done. So, um, but really, what I had followed it like everyone else had followed it, and it was a huge story for a day or two, and then it just kind of receded in the background. Um, and it was never. I read some. In fact, uh, our colleague Dylan DeCherry did some great stuff for Golf.com on Deadline when it first happened. It was never clear to me exactly why her, why then. Was it completely random? Was there more to it? So 
that was always just kind of buried in my brain. But then as we were looking, as this February issue was coming together and so much time went into the aesthetics of the design, the layout, someone someone at some point said, wow, we need like a, a rich, well-reported story to kind of anchor this. And we started, some emails went around and we were trying to find a good story for someone to do. It wound up being me. And this idea just kind of sprang from that, that who wants to write uh, something big and what, what is it? And I kind of raised my hand. And so I, I wound up going to Iowa state and uh, her, you know, met with her boyfriend. I was, that was a really tough interview. I mean, this was the love of his life and he was still kind of coming to grips with, with having lost her, her teammates, her coaches. I went to Spain to her little hometown to interview her family. And, um, you know, she was just an, a, a really special person everywhere she went. People loved Thelia and, uh, she was an incredible golfer. She was a great student with an engineering major, just an exemplary person in every way. And in some ways, it's easy to tell that story. It, it's it's emotional, but uh, you're just you're celebrating an incredible person. But what 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 gave the story, I think, its its uh, gravity was I realized at some point I wanted to know more about the alleged killer, this guy Colin Richards, who's behind bars awaiting trial and. I decided I need to tell his story too to kind of understand, you know, he's 22 just like Thelia was and they were on such incredibly different trajectories and how how did their cross path or their paths cross, excuse me, and and why? And so reporting Colin's life was was a great challenge. He he wouldn't speak to me from the jailhouse as I I expected since he's awaiting trial. I just want to say anything that's going to get him in trouble. His lawyer wouldn't talk to me, but I did get his mom. I went uh, I kind of traveled his his life, and so that meant going to meth houses in Ames and going to homeless encampments in the woods and going to his old schools, knock on the door of some, some distant family, going to his little hometown of Coon Rapids, Iowa. Um, it was really some interesting reporting, and it, it was a little, you know, my heart was beating a few times just knocking on the door of some sketchy places in in. Uh, where I knew there was some, some people who had been mixed up in some bad stuff. And so it was, uh, it was not your typical golf story, but kind of telling, telling his life story and, and how it sort of spiraled out of control in parallel with, with Celia's story, which is his tremendous accomplishments and surrounded by love and defined by achievement. I think, I think it makes the story a lot richer and more interesting. What was it like for Celia's parents here they've got this beautiful daughter who's talented at golf. They send her to our country with all its riches and opportunities, with all the hopes in the world, and for that daughter to come back lifeless. What could that experience have been like uh, for them? It was hard. You know, I have, a, I have daughters, and talking to them, it's impossible not to kind of project your own emotions in, into that situation. And it was really the first interview they had done, um, I had a translator to help me because they, they don't speak much English. But um, just sitting there, the the mom, she, uh, Miriam, she's, she has a kind of a quiet strength about her. And I was amazed at how well she held held up. But um, you know, Celia's father, uh, Marcos, he he broke down a lot when we were talking. And you could just see the, the burden on him. He told me you know, it had been two months. He'd hardly slept. He was, he was taking Valium to try and just get through the night. And... Um, but it was also, there was a lot of laughs. There was a lot of funny stories in, in the course of this day-long interview. And it, it was heartwarming. And they were bringing out her old scrapbooks and 
and her day planners and all these things that they've held on to to kind of keep her alive. And so I, I think it was cathartic for them. They were sort of touched that I'd made the effort, you know, to come all oh, the way sure. from California and to sit in their living room. And um, so there was there was a warmth about it, but it was it was it was tough. It really was. And um, they're they're just really taking it one day at a time. I mean, it's 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 tough. They they love to play golf. You know, they they'd all play together as a family, and they'd always go with her when she practiced. And and now the parents said they can't play anymore. They just it's too painful. So. But they feel closest to her on golf courses in her memory. And so the, there's this, this course that Celia was practicing at that they go and they just walk in, in like twilight. And, you know, Marcos told me that's where they go to cry. And uh, so it was really it was really powerful uh, experience just to just to kind of be dropped into her life. And same thing with, you know, talking to all her teammates there was times that they were laughing so hard they couldn't even breathe because so many she was just such a larger than life character and so many funny things happened um around her and then of course there was a lot of other kind of tears because um she had touched them so deeply so it was it was a really um satisfying story to write to kind of celebrate her life and to try and try and understand her death and but it also it was kind of it was it was it was upsetting for me to, as an American, to, to go over to Spain and, and see, uh, to, you know, to your question from a while ago, how, how, how are they processing it? And for a lot of the folks over there, it kind of crystallized this feeling that the U.S. has become this dangerous, scary place. You know, we, there's obviously there's a school shooting every day, statistically. Uh, the per capita media murder rate in the United States is 26 times out of Spain. And I, I interviewed the mayor of this little town where, where Thelia's from, and he was actually a school teacher before that, and and she was his favorite student. Then it was a really sweet relationship, and um, you know he said in this town, I said, has there been any? Is there violent crime here? He said, oh no, never. I I grew up here. I've been the mayor for three years. I can't think of one incident of violent crime we've ever had. I said, when was the last murder? He said, oh, the 1930s during the <laughs> Spanish Civil War. <laughs> you know, and um, and so I was going to these small towns in Iowa that were part, about the same sizes Puente San Miguel um, but they're racked by drugs and violence it, um, either the opioid crisis and then throughout Iowa right. meth is still a huge problem because one of the if you're if you're gonna cook meth yourself one of the most common ingredients is this fertilizer that's found on farms all over Iowa so they have a huge meth problem and that was ultimately the issue for Colin Richards the uh, the alleged murderer you know he had a huge meth problem and, and rewired his brain I think to the point that um, he just was not a functioning member of society, clearly. And so, um, to you know, I talked talk to the sheriff in this little town, and he said that the crime has gotten out of control. There's there's this new term that I, in doing my research, um, the rural ghetto that's being used to describe parts of Iowa that are just the crime, the drugs, the um, the decay, and it was really it was really disheartening look at American society especially in the contrast to Spain where um, you, know, you look at Iowa, it's a homogenous rural place, much like where, where, where Thelia grew up. Mm. And so you can't say, oh, it's big city or it's, it's because you have all of this culture clash. That's not what Iowa is. Mm -hmm. And they still have these problems. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then of course you, you extrapolate throughout the, the rest of the United States. So it was, it was, it was a heavy piece. There's a lot of social science in it. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of stuff that 
that, that's pretty far afield from a classic, you know, golf story. But uh, I think that that's why I enjoy the challenge of it. And I think hopefully, you know, readers will get a lot out of it. Well, it's moving just hearing you uh, uh, talk about it, but it's also illustrative of what we do. I mean, we write about golfers for an audience of golfers and just sitting here listening to you uh, 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 describe it already has me completely uh, absorbed in her life and times. But the starting point, of course, is that she is a golfer and uh, and that's very relevant. And I think also not that this is the point of the of the tragedy of of us writing about about her, her, her life and death, but. Um, one of the reasons we expect people to come to Golf Magazine and Golf.com is we're going to tell you something you do not know. And now, you know, it, it might have tragic consequences and far-reaching implications like this story does, um, but it might be just something like your column about uh, Tiger and Phil and, and, the, and the match that, that's, a, you know, a, a different circumstance altogether. But the organizing principle is identical. We're writing about golfers for an audience of golfers, and we're going to try to tell you something you do not know because people's time is valuable, and we've got to give them a reason to pay attention with us. So let's let's shift gears here to something a, a little more fun. Uh, I, you, you and I were both planning to go. Um, uh, well, you got a little run down from all your traveling and, and didn't go, but I did go uh, to the match. And well, j- just for a quick minute on, on my own experience there, I was on the golf course watching it and enjoying it. Uh, I knew who they weren't playing good golf. But they were, you know, they're still Phil Mickelson, Tiger Woods. They're not good golf. It's still pretty spectacular. Uh, I knew it wasn't, you know, there wasn't much chit chat. I didn't think there would be uh, Tiger, Tiger being Tiger. But I didn't realize what a disaster it was until later. And by the way, I'm sure Mark Steinberg didn't either because he was actually chatty and slightly conversational with me on the golf course, which he normally never is. So he obviously didn't know who was going back. But anyway, but that's old hat. We've 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 analyzed that. But let's talk about your column where you analyze the match, but also where is this thing going, and what does it say about us as as you know part of the golf quote industry that we're still so married to Tiger and Phil all these years later. Going back to when I first reported the existence of the match, it was never a one-off. I mean, these guys, it's they created this LLC, and it, it's a whole it's a whole business plan they have, and they're going to take it all over the world. It, it didn't even it didn't really matter how this one played out. They're committed to this in the long term. If it was an utter disaster, then from a from a competitive standpoint and or an aesthetic standpoint, maybe they would have rethought it. But I thought back nine actually there was about an hour and a half where it was really fun to watch. They they both started playing well on the back nine. It got tense. You didn't know who was gonna win. It was just enough of an artistic triumph that I think they're all square through 18. I mean, that's typically the definition of an exciting match. Exactly. And, you know, that, on that par three, was at 13 where, where they both stuffed their tee shots. And I mean, it, it got really good for just enough time to keep us coming back. But I mean, this is a good segue into 2019 because it, we all remember Tiger winning the tour championship and it was transcendent. And then, of course, the next week he goes over and completely lays an egg at the Ryder Cup. Then he, he lets Phil beat him, in which was obviously a, sort of a tacky made-for-TV event. But still, the world is watching. You think Tiger wants to lose to Phil Mickelson with people paying attention? I mean, it, it, put, it took a little of the shine off of Tiger's renaissance, how he, he just limped through the end of this season. Does that give you any pause heading into 2019, or are you, are you just more bullish based on his victories and, and his, his fine play? No, no I... I uh... 
I, I don't know who I'm stealing this from. I Possibly this is original thought, but probably not. Um, I think Tiger is – we're only going to see good golf from Tiger in warm, borderline hot conditions. So I don't think there are that many – you know, of the 18 weeks he plays, I don't think there are that many weeks when he's his back is really going to be loose enough that he can really take a rip at it. I was shocked to see how long he actually is with that sort of hold cut – uh, drive move that he has, but he really actually can get it out there uh, long enough to compete. Uh, but, you know, Augusta National, you get an early tee time on one of the two days. It doesn't really get that warm. You know, uh, Beth Page in May, it's not going to be that warm. You know, uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland never gets that warm. What does that leave? Pebble Beach. It's going to be there. It's foggy so, in June. Yeah. So I just don't, I, I just think this guy needs heat. What, 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 uh, how about you? What's your sense? Yeah, I think, I think people need to accept that it, there's going to be a lot of off weeks for Tiger. Whether it's whether it's what you're referencing, or maybe he just can't grind hard enough in practice to be razor sharp. The old Tiger, you know, as he always said, I'm I, I'm here to win every every time I tee it up. Those days are gone. I, I think there's 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 going to be more duds, and that's okay. I mean, we all just want him to peak four weeks this coming year and, and the year after and the year after. So, um, and I think that was part of his thinking for not playing, playing this week, tournament champions is he would have to grind through Christmas and new year's to be ready. And he didn't want to do that. He he's run down at the end of the year. He just, uh, I think that that was kind of a, cause I think part tiger would have liked to have come and brought his kids and, and shown them like this, this is part of the life I haven't been, been living as, as a tournament winner. And as a, member of the the upper echelon on the tour. I think I think it actually would have been fun for Tiger to do that now that his kids are older, but um it was it was a capitulation. It was it was a it was a, a kind of an acceptance that he has his limits. And it's good that he found them last year. It's too bad that, you know, what, what happened in Paris was part of that. But he he realized that he just can't play that much golf and that he he can't be sharp all the time. And so um yeah, I mean the temperature thing is interesting. I I, I question like, you know, are there days when, when Tiger wakes up and he just knows he's not going to break 70 no matter what? Because that the second he steps out of bed, he just feels a certain way. Uh, that's got to be discouraging for him, for a guy who's always been about maximizing his 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 potential and his, his you know minimizing his score. So um, it's gonna it's gonna be a fascinating year. I mean, he pushed so hard to get to the mountaintop in Atlanta, right? And um, was it, is that is that be, become the new? the new normal for Tiger where he can play at that level or did that take everything he had to get back? Um, and we're going to find out. Yeah. It's funny to hear you use the phrase uh, uh, when he was uh, part of the upper echelon of the tour. Uh, I would see that phrase and raise it to this. He was the tour. He was the tour. <laughs> he was the tour. And the tour really is having a hard time letting go. And yeah. uh, I think we're just, I think we're seeing in this uh, discovery uh, deal how much he still is a driving force in the game, even though it's very possible he'll never win another tournament again, period. It's certainly possible. Yeah. Uh, but this, but he's already shifting the landscape of uh, TV viewer v- viewing in the favor of Discovery. And I don't even know if they have a deal. I think they just saw an opportunity. And let's give Tiger a bunch of money or some money or whatever it might be. And sign him up now while we can. But what's your, what's have you reported that deal at all? What's your you, you know anything about it? What's your sense of it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've been reading about. It. Yeah, I, I think they're still figuring out how they're going to use him. If that's the question, right? Um, but I mean, literally, 
Tiger created more excitement just pulling into the parking lot and walking to the clubhouse on Sundays at major championships than any other player did on the golf course. You know, just the cult around Tiger, the way social media explodes when he does anything, even if it's just show up in like a muscle shirt, it's just, it's good and bad because it can't last forever. And it's, um, in some ways it minimizes what everyone else is doing. You know, poor Brooks Kepka. Like he, another reason for him to be bitter at the world. He had his his career year during Tiger's comeback season, and uh, it's just part of why he got overlooked because it's just nothing he does is exciting as as Tiger just you know tying his shoes. So um, it, it's a it's a funny thing. Presumably, maybe this 2018 represents peak Tiger hysteria. He came back, he won, he contended. I don't, I don't think we can stay at this level. But then if he wins the Masters, who knows? Then we're, we're, back, we're back on the Nicholas watch. So uh, I'm already exhausted, and, and the, the year just started. <laughs> right. There is a majesty about about him. Uh, whether you like him as a person or not, there is a majesty about him. There's a majesty about the way he warms up. There's a majesty about the way he fingers his clubs when he's deciding which one. Either, you know, uh, you know, Cameron Champ, I got to watch. Have you seen him play in person yet? No, I can't wait. Uh, well, I have. Well, he, you know, I'll just tell you, my sense is it's spectacular. There's no charisma there at all. The swing looks like a sort of ordinary swing on on super speed, uh, whereas Tiger swing, Justin Johnson swing, Roy McIlroy swing, you know, there's something special going on there. Cameron Champ swing is probably the swing of the future where all the positions look normal, but the speed is uh, astonishing. But, uh, yeah, there, there, are, there are lots of reasons why we can't uh, uh, let go of Tiger. I can't <laughs> quit <show>. you, <laughs> to quote Brokeback Mountain. Um, yeah. All right. So Tiger's Tiger. We have to we have to tip our cap. What, what do we think about the new tour schedule? Okay. Do you mind if we just go back to uh, Tiger Phil? See, this one we can't quit. Well, we can't quit. No, but only because um, I'm just curious to know your opinion. What is your sense of their relationship? Well, it's the best it's ever been. At least until you know Phil started cracking jokes, uh, you know, Sunday night at the match. But. Um, it never made sense for them not to, to be closer. They're both California guys. They're more or less the same age. They're family men at this point. Um, and they're by far the biggest stars of the last quarter century. Tiger's in his own universe. We all know that. But the only person who could even understand the kind of scrutiny and pressure he faces is Phil Mickelson and vice versa. It just didn't make sense for them not to be friends. They love they love sports. They love action. They love the needle um, there, there, there's so much common ground there and early, early on in, in their, in their careers, sure. They, they, you know, there was a disparity in their achievements and they were competitors and they were rivals. But at this point, it, it only makes sense for them to evolve as friendly uh, compatriots. And now they have this, this linked business venture and, uh, they're, they're tied at the hip planning Ryder cups and president's cups. And so, I don't think they're ever going to be super, super close. I mean, Phil's such a, a know-it-all, and you can see it drives Tiger a little crazy. Um, like there was this funny moment at the match when they're they're standing there at that pile of money, and and Phil was talking about, oh, did you tee up your L wedge there? You know, in the playoff, yeah, looked like it hit a little high in high in the face, and that's why it carried so far. And you could, like, Tiger almost pulled the muscle rolling his eyes. I mean, there's always going to be that element, um, and. But I'm glad to see that they they've mostly moved on from all their little petty feuds of the of the '90s, and 
the game is better if they have a relationship. Just like like Jack and Arnold and their kinship elevated a lot of things. Um, you know, when, when you think about Arnie and Jack, um, the speeches, it, it was, was it the SPs? It was so emotional after Winnie had died, and then the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Like to to have each other to present and to to acknowledge made those those things more meaningful and more special because their star power was magnified. And I think, as we saw with the match, I think Tiger and Phil, it's the same same goes for them. They're 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 a better brand together than apart because the the differences and their unique histories um, kind of throws into sharp relief the other person and and the other person's accomplishments. So I'm I'm happy about it, but the awkwardness is still fun and mm-hmm. delicious, and I hope that never totally goes away. Let me ask you about a golfer you've written a lot about. Who uh, I know Brooks Kepka has his complaints about lack of attention, but this guy whose name I'm about to mention, you've probably already figured it out, really is a revolutionary figure in the game, except he can't get any traction beyond, except beyond the group that really follows uh, the tour closely. But of course, Bryson DeChambeau had an absolutely extraordinary year with a method and equipment that nobody else is doing. And uh, he's an engaging person uh, to talk to, but there doesn't seem to be any traction there. Uh, Outside of the uh, the golf nerd population, uh, is that a true or un- untrue statement? Yeah, there's a lot of golf nerds, though, and that, that's a significant portion of the the population. I, I think people love and hate Bryce in equal measure, and that's good. It's better than than not provoking any kind of reaction or emotion. Um, he's playing. I mean, was he fifth in the world ranking? I mean, his his play speaks for itself. Uh, it's gonna be really fun to watch him in the major championships. He's He's so calculating. He's so smart, and he understands the percentages. I can't wait to watch him. You know, pick it. You know, pick it apart. Pebble Beach, and some of these. I other can't wait per- to see him downhill putt from four feet at Augusta National above the hole with the flags. The flags again. I know all these things. I mean, it's fascinating. He, he is. There's there's a little. I mean, Bryson was kind of a lone wolf growing up. He's a very strong, specific personality, and so. He's not an introvert exactly, but there's just a little bit of social awkwardness there, and it, it comes out. I think he has trouble connecting with some of his fellow players and certainly with reporters. But he, he as he's become a star this year, I, 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 he seemed more comfortable and he seemed more able to be himself, and that's enough. He doesn't have to try and be any of these other guys. You know, he's not going to be uh, at Baker's Bay, not wearing a shirt and and hitting you know golf balls out of beer cans like that's not him, and that's that's good. We need contrast. There's enough kind of bland young American stars. I mean, Bryson is is he's he's a totally different flavor. Is that bag single length sandwiched through three iron? Two iron, I believe, in two yeah. iron. And then what happens after that? Well, so he's it changes because at one point he was experimenting with having all of his his woods be 42 inches his driver three wooden hybrids would all be the same that that got abandoned but so you know i've gone single length as you know and i have hybrids that are now on a basically seven iron shaft and they look like toys but they go like hell i love them um and they're really easy to hit and you know bryson has he's he's fool around with that stuff at present i'm pretty sure that his hybrids, his three wood, his driver, all kind of standard length, but it's always subject to change with him, and that's kind of the fun part. I mean, you never know what he's going to do next. 
How does he hit it so far? Because and, and Tiger's a little bit the same, actually, because it looks like compared to swings of your and even Rory's swing today, there's no release. It doesn't look like the club ever turns over. I don't really know what he does, but it looks awkward. It doesn't look that athletic, and yet the ball goes out there. How, how does he do that? He's incredibly strong, for one. He's, like, country strong. I mean, when I was hanging out with him back in 2015, right before he turned pro, he hit balls for eight hours straight. And then he went on to this. It was a he built. He was building his own contraptions back then. It, it was basically a machine that mimicked his his swing plane, but plus resistance. And so, and he just did that until the sweat was pouring off of him. And then he went and he'd, he'd strung up um, between two trees. I forget what they call it, but it's basically like a tight walk rope. Um, mm-hmm. And then he was doing that and doing all these weird exercises and doing that with barbells. <laughs> it was just incredible. Then he went back and hit another 100 drivers and trying to swing as hard as he could. And I mean, he just, he pushes his body really hard. And I saw him, let's see, where was it? Um, at the PJ Championship. And we were just chatting. I just put my hand on, like, on his shoulder. I was like, God damn it, this guy is just a, mm-hmm. a brick. Um so, I mean, that's part of it. It's just, he, he doesn't, it doesn't necessarily, he doesn't wear the skin tight clothes like some of these guys. So it, it doesn't show as much, but right. he's really solid. I mean, he's listed at 205 and the, the tour media guy, and that's probably outdated. I mean, he's just, he's just a big, strong dude for yeah. starters. And he hits it in the dead sweet spot. And as, as you know, that's the most important thing. And uh, I mean, his strike sounds like almost no other. It's so pure. And yeah. um, so, I don't know, and it's just efficient. He he has found the for his body and his swing, he's found the most efficient way to do it and to get the most out of every swing. It, it's astounding. It's a, it's astounding how different it is. His mind is different. His clubs are different. His method is different. And uh, and he, and he's as you said, it's fifth in the world and and winning and contending when he doesn't win. Uh, so quick question for you about um, changes at Augusta National. Yeah, um, their number five has been lengthened. Um, maybe it's thirty or forty yards longer. I don't know. Thirteen eventually get lengthened. Are there other holes that have been? Uh, those are the. I mean, in, in this this current tweaking, those are the two big ones. What's your feeling overall about the continuing lengthening of this? shrine of golf I mean, it's just necessary because the fifth hole used to be the, the biggest baddest toughest par for augusta national actually jenkins wrote a whole si article about that hole you know in the 70s partly because where it is on the property a lot of people skip it and they just go from four to six because um they're more fun holes to watch have and, you ever been on that uh that fairway bunker on, on the left on the left yeah, actually yeah. i have there's only one place to go from there and that's into the next fairway bunker. <laughs> i was gonna say backwards <laughs> yeah it's deep it's a deep it's dark impossible. place <laughs> but um and that has become a driver wedge i mean it was just playing so short it i mean it's 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 kind of it's on one hand it's hilarious that Augusta National has to buy up an entire neighborhood, wipe it out so they can just lengthen their their golf holes. I mean, but it's also it's a necessity. Um, it, it is, in my opinion, a tremendous indictment on something that we've talked about before and well, others obviously, have talked about. Obviously, yeah, a tremendous indictment that that golf course continues to be lengthened. It, um, it's obviously not a par seventy two. You can continue to call it a par seventy two, and you might as well. Uh, and it's obvious too that um, that 63 and 64 and 65 as scores aren't now 
what they used to be. Uh, and that the game, sh- the game should probably evolve that way uh, toward lower numbers uh, than continuing to try to lengthen, lengthen these golf courses to the point where they're uh, unwalkable and so slow in every in every sense you know part of what made august national uh, great in its in its heyday and now some might have argued you know the jimmy demerit era was, was its heyday but was that uh, there was speed to that golf course uh in the way the pairs played and going from the green to the tee lots of different ways really and um now it's a slog and it's becoming sluggier uh, yeah it was I'm, intimate it was it, it, it was like it really a little was. bandbox and that old driving range was intimate in a yeah minute. Uh, and that was like Disneyland. Every yeah. time you go there, it's they've they've done something new that is. I think Bobby Jones would like roll his eyes about. But um, yeah, it's. I'm and surprised I'll, that someone charismatic can't really see that none of this is actually serving the game well and put a stop to it. Well, how is it serving the game well? What what? It, how is the 360 yard driver serving the game well? On one level, it's fun to watch. I mean, we, we enjoy watching. Why is there so much buzz about Cam Champ? It's because he smashes it. I mean, that, we're all prisoners to that. It's fun It's fun to watch. Who's on the cover of the new golf magazine? Dustin Johnson. It's not because he's, he's a great interview. It's because he kills it, and it's fun to watch. So, I mean, we're, we're all part of the problem. But, um, yeah, th- I've been writing about this for a while, you know. Uh, it started out as kind of a gag. We need a 9,000-yard golf course. I mean, it was meant to be absurd, but it's actually completely true. I mean, 7,800 yards is nothing to these guys. 8,000 yards is not long enough. I mean, what was what was Aaron Hills? It was supposed to be 78. They didn't tip it out, but, I mean, Brooks Kepka destroyed that place. Um, so it the game is just painting itself into a corner because in, in the short term, okay, you're Fred Ridley. You probably would like to take Augusta National back to how it was with, with you know, he's a purist. You'd probably like to pull out all those Hootie Johnson trees and cut the rough and do all these other things that kind of bastardized the golf course and took away from its original intent and its, its vision and how it's supposed to play as this, as this in, inland St. Andrews. But if you were to do those things, 25 under would win and everyone would be like, wow, this is, this is kind of lame. So um, I think that, you know, short of a master's ball and or some some, you know, other action to to rein in distance. This is just this is just what we have to deal with year in year out. It's interesting because the governing bodies really this time this year for the first time have actually said that the elite game and our game really is a different. Uh, it really is a different game. With the, with the most obvious proof being this ridiculous idea that uh, if you if you knock out a bounce, drop it where it wouldn't be, and add two. To your score you should have one to your score right. that would have been a game changer and that's how we all play it anyhow right you know you can't go to a busy public golf course and hike on back after you've hit an ob you drop it or now and you add one you know but anyway the fact that they're making you add two is ridiculous but anyway but what they have done is acknowledge that they do play a different game than we play and they really should have taken if i may use this word the ballsy step of creating a different a, a different golf ball for, for league golfers and do something to stem this uh, tide. Because when your joke about 9,000 yards, the only thing that's not funny about it is it's the truth. You, know? you need but, actually 9,000. When when Hogan was playing 6,800 yards, 6,800 yards for with Hogan's 245-yard tee shot is a 9,000-yard golf course today. Well, I mean, 
if you watch these wonderful world of golf um, replays, exactly. I mean, these guys are hitting five irons uh, on on ho- on holes. Like, you know, using wedges. It's it's just it's a it's a different skill set. The but here's the problem: if we roll the ball back for the pros and Cam Champ is driving it 280, is that exciting? I can drive it 280 sometimes. Like, it's just yeah. Be, it is exciting because it would bring back uh, it would bring back Larry Mize and Matt Kuchar and Jim Furyk, uh, and show that there are. Uh, ranges of body types and swing speeds that can play this game uh, at, at the highest level and and would create uh, more interest in the more uh, delicate, subtle parts of the game, pitching and chipping and putting. Maybe. That's I, the I, historic greatness of, of, of these masters is chipping, pitching, and putting. Yeah, it's... You know, we've been talking about this for years. It's... it's, it's and a, we shall continue, God willing. <laughs> God, I don't know. Howard. I hope Howard. not. All right. This is supposed to be a 2019 preview, Michael. We've been previewing it. Yeah, I know. I don't have I don't have much appetite for that either. Let's let's do a what couple. About Riley's book. Let's let's spend a minute. Riley's got a book coming out. I assume sometime in 2019 yeah, about May. about Trump's golf. Ech, let's skip this. We don't even want to talk about Riley I, or Trump. I mean, you you wrote the definitive Trump golf feature back. You in, wrote the definitive Trump political golf. Future. Yeah, let's move on. Yeah, Riley, we already know. The Just course. kidding, Rick. We know you're listening. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> that was an unexpected detour, but I like it. I don't know. I had a moment of enthusiasm to talk about Trump's golf, but I've lost it. Yeah, no, uh, I've lost it too. Um, all right, you're, you're a Long Island guy. You grew up near Bethpage, the town of Patchogue, which I love to say. Just is it going to be a disaster to have the PJ there in early no. May? No, it'll be cool, yeah. uh, and it could be cool. You know, yeah. you, it it can be it can be rainy and and you know it, you could have daytime highs of sixty or sixty two degrees. But uh, you know that's golf. I mean, all of us play golf in that weather, and uh, it's totally appropriate to play PGA Championship uh, in, in those kind of conditions. Uh, so you know, it would not be my first choice to move if you were going to. Uh, my feeling, truly, they thought it was a joke, but it was not a joke on my part. Was the 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 best moment to have the PGA Championship would have been uh, late February, make it the first of the year. And uh, as you know, my, my idea would have been to have it at Pebble Beach every year, have the have the old Bing Crosby AT&T tournament morph into the PGA Championship, play to Pebble every year, I think would have been really cool. But obviously that's not going to happen. It didn't <laughs> happen. Uh, I what? think May's neat. Okay. I'm going to say that you know I'm your biggest fan. I've always been your publicist. I'm going to say that's probably the worst idea you've ever had, Michael. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to lay it out there. Well, then that's pretty good because that's not that bad an idea to be your worst ever. <laughs> okay, fair play. Uh, I mean, as I look at the schedule, I have to admit I'm a little excited from from March to July. Yeah. There's so much good golf. And I think it's cool that it's going to end at, at Portrush. That's going to be such a crescendo. You know, it was, it was always a little bit of a letdown to go from an epic open championship to some second-rate PGA venue and where we're getting, you know, swamp ass in the in the summertime like i think i think it's it's kind of neat and it also means it can have more of my summer vacation with my kids like i'm i'm really a fan of the new schedule yeah i i think it'll be good too and by the way and that the phrase champion golfer of the year is going to be more when it is the last major than more of a lead-up time to either the Ryder cup or the president's cup which i think now of course tiger being the captain is part of it but i think for whatever reason i think that the president's cup 
certainly it can't be worse. So viewed that way, I'm not really saying anything. But I think it is maybe on a, on an upward swing, and I think this will be an important year for it, especially if the Americans lose in Australia as they did the last, I believe, the last time they were there. A long yeah, time they were now. Yeah, that, I mean, maybe. Tiger as playing captain is he should be the permanent playing captain for the Presidents Cup even ten years from now because it's the only thing that that makes it different and interesting like how he manages that who he pairs himself with mm-hmm. that's going to be fascinating mm-hmm. we're, we're, none of us have ever cared about the Presidents Cup mm-hmm. but I'm super excited about this one because it gives me a reason to do one of the greatest boondoggles in a career full of them I'm already planning a trip to go to New Zealand the Sand Belt Tasmania and Kings Island for this golf orgy. It's like eight courses in the world top 100 on one trip. And I'm... What's in Kings Island? um, There's this... It's Cape Wickham and um, Ocean Dunes. A couple of... It's golf porn. You got to look at these pictures. And it's, it's pretty close to Tasmania, really, where you have Lost Farms and you have Barn Boogle. And then, of course, we all know the Sand Belt... And then in uh, in New Zealand, you have Tara Edi, this new dope course. It, it's like in the top 30 in the golf magazines, World 100. And you have Kidnappers, and you have Kari Cliffs, and there's a couple others that are on the, on the radar. So That's neat. Is Janela coming with you? <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's part of it. It's, it's this usual wolf pack. These, we've taken a bunch of these trips. And uh, what else? Is there anything else we need to touch upon? I don't think so. Well, of course, U.S. Open coming to my my quasi hometown at Pebble yes. Beach. We have a lot of good options for Sunday podcasts. Good, <laughs> could be. Not, when it's not going to be. You played the Pebble Beach course just a few weeks ago. How'd that go for you? Uh, oh, so pure. The course, not my game, but um, it, it's interesting that they, I mean the RDA are starting to grow in the rough, and uh-huh. there are some skinny fairways out there. Interesting. Um. Since the last open, they've redone the 13th, 14th, and 17th greens, uh, taken away some of the more severe slopes, increased the square footage to have more pin options. So that's going to be a market improvement for um, for this open. They have a new a new tee box. They actually have two new tee boxes for for 10, one way back from where the t- traditional is, and then they put this cute little tee box right next to the ninth green. So it totally changes the angle and the look of that hole. And I think they're going to use that at least once. It makes the whole place shorter and even actually drivable for, for some of these monsters on tour. Do they uh, have a, will they have a one ten start? Uh, is that what they had last time? A yeah. One ten start? That's kind of awkward at Pebble beach, but yeah. um, I mean, to me it's, it takes away from one thing. What's great about Pebble beach is the rhythm of the round. You know, it's this gentle yeah. beginning. Yeah. And then and then the crescendo down by the ocean. Then you turn inland and on the back nine. Not that those holes are easy, but it's this build up to 17 and 18. And when you start on 10, it gets destroyed. I don't know when the USA started going to, to split tees for U.S. Opens, but it was way – if they need a smaller field to preserve just having everybody go off the first tee, they should do that in my opinion. Uh, it takes away a lot from those Thursday, Friday rounds, having guys go off uh, the 10th tee. Uh, how have they memorialized? Uh, it's just sad to think of R.J. Harper not being here for, for U.S. Open. Uh, a lot of our listeners wouldn't know uh, who he is. Why don't you just briefly fill us in? And Yeah, well, R.J. is just institution around Pebble Beach. He started as a, as a ranger in the late 80s, became head pro uh, in the early 90s. And when I was a cart boy there, he was my boss. And he's just the most charismatic dude I've ever met. He was a college football star. He, this this term gets used a lot. It, usually it's not accurate, but he did look like a movie star, incredibly handsome guy. And just um, 
the world just sort of gravitated towards him. And he, he was at Pebble for over three decades, and he was a general chairman of the last couple of U.S. Opens and just kind of was the heartbeat of that place. And he died of pancreatic cancer last year. And um, it's he had so much institutional knowledge. He's, he's really irreplaceable around there, and they're starting to feel that. I, I have friends at the Pebble Beach Company, and everyone's highly stressed out even six months yeah. out because – RJ just he just he he knew how to do everything and they they he really him. went too young yeah he was they, a real gent of golf just he, a really fine person it, it, as you know there there's a handful of guys um, Bob Ford and uh, people like that who are just institutions in the game and they're they're kind of connectors they, they know everyone they make introductions they bring they make the sport a lot smaller and RJ was was like that and um, it's funny that you you asked that question because I was I was just cleaning out some old golf stuff and I found. Uh, a ball that had his initials on it, and when I was, I wrote I wrote that story for for golf dot com as as he was nearing the end of his battle with cancer, and we went out and played a few holes, and I snagged his ball at the end as a as a keepsake, and I hadn't seen it in, in a year. I just pulled it out, I was like, oh my gosh, that just happened a couple of days ago. But that's neat. Yeah, they re, at Pebble they renamed one of the restaurants for him, which is cute. It's called Harper's now, and uh-huh. um, you know, I'd I'd like to see him do more, but. Um, it is what it is, but like that, that T box on number 10, the new one, mm-hmm. that was his idea. Um, he was, he's, he, he left his imprint on that golf course and it's still, it's still there, but you know, what's actually an interesting thing about when you talk about Pebble beach as a golf course is Arnold Palmer was, was the, the managing partner of the Pebble beach company along with Peter Ubroth and a couple and Dick Ferris and a couple guys like that. And Arnie wasn't that involved in the day to day. But he did he did get involved in the golf course, not necessarily for the better. You know, he put he put this super deep fairway bunker out on fifteen that you can't see off the tee that everybody hates. Right. And he, he put those those bunkers on the right side of number three, which really that they, it wasn't necessary because if you play down the right side on three, you have no angle to that green because that that huge gaping bunker that's front right. And but if you're in those bunkers, you really have no chance. Whereas before you're coming out of the rough, you could try and get onto the back of the green and. Um, the arnification of Pebble has not been widely beloved uh-huh. uh, by those who really care about the golf course. And, th- and now that he's gone, um, there's some talk about maybe going back and uh-huh. and untweaking the tweaks. It hasn't happened yet. There's still such, such reverence. But it'll be curious to see um, if some of those things happen. And even, you know, Mike Davis, he killed the sixth hole um, for the last U.S. Open, that still endures, and I keep I keep waiting for that to change. Because if you remember, down the left side of six, it was there was three smallish bunkers, and he he made one gigantic bunker and shifted it way right because he wanted the golfers to have to play their drives closer to the ocean, uh-huh. which was good in theory. But what everyone does now is they just aim on the hillside right. on the left, which is not even part of the golf course. It's just open land basically. Right. There's no fairway cut, but. The ball will trickle down onto the cart path. You get a free drop, and it takes the ocean and the bunkers out of play. And you're higher up where you can actually see the green versus down in the fairway. It's a blind shot. I don't know anyone who plays the fairway on six anymore. And it used to be the coolest drive on the golf course just visually. Why don't they just grow some rough up there on the left side of six? Well, it's just – I mean, it's not, it's not grass. It's just – it's like hard pan and uh-huh. weeds. And, I see. I mean, they could, but uh-huh. then – then everyone would certainly, if it was green grass, it would almost be more appealing. It's just Mike Mike Davis ruined one of the greatest holes in golf, uh, not for the first time. So it, 
I love Pebble Beach. You know, everyone knows I worked there for three summers, and it's kind of where I learned how to play golf, and it's a special place to me. But they, there's some things that need to happen there to um, kind of bring it back to its former glory. And mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, the tee sheet is is packed every day, and the the corporate culture there is to squeeze every dollar out, and so they don't want to they don't want to shut the course down for six months or right. whatever it would take, but. When you look at the old photos they have in the lodge of what that place looked like in the 20s and 30s, it was so mint. It was just incredible. And uh, it was a little rough around the edges and a, a little wild and woolly. And now it's, it's a little too manicured and they've, they've, put, they've added too much. It's like it's like a beautiful woman was wearing too much makeup and too much jewelry. Like It would look better if they stripped away some of that stuff. Right. So, I don't know. When I... When I write the next Harry Potter series and I buy the Pebble Beach Company, that's what I'm going to do. In the meantime, there's always Pacific Grove. I, I love Pacific Grove. There's, yeah, let's do that. We'll, we'll go out at Twilight Open Week and we'll play the dunes there. And Neat. It's, it's a good life. All right. All right, Michael, as always. A pleasure. We should just tee it up that we're going to, we'll try and keep alive our streak of doing post-major championship podcasts and... We're going, to keep, we're going to keep coming back to the listeners as much as possible. So for those who have stuck it out to the bitter end, thank you for listening. Uh, as always, this is Alan Shipnuck for the Golf.com podcasts. Peace out. Mm-hmm.